Hello and welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Defining the Diploma, What Does College and Career Ready Mean Today? We recorded this program on Tuesday, June 18th, 2019 at the Conference Center at Mercer County Community College in West Windsor, New Jersey. In this, the second of our 2019 Defining the Diploma series, NJ Spotlight is hosting a program focusing on expectations we have of our high school graduates and how we should formulate those expectations while setting policy and practices. The panel discussion will explore college and university perspectives on post-graduation pursuits and also take a look at private and public sector job paths where New Jersey graduates head next. Among the questions to be answered, how have graduate skills and knowledge requirements shifted in recent years? How are schools in the state dealing with this changing landscape and setting expectations looking forward? And could there be a better connection between K-12 education and New Jersey's wide array of businesses and employers hiring from it, from family shops to major corporations? And now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, the founding editor and education writer for NJ Spotlight, is about to open the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Good evening. Um, my name is John Mooney. I'm founding editor and uh, erstwhile education writer for um, NJ Spotlight, and um, really thrilled that you all can be here uh, for what is the second in our series on uh, defining the diploma and, and talking about the many elements of that. Uh, to give you some context, the first one we did in March was for those who weren't with us, was with uh, Commissioner uh, Lamont Repolette and three uh, high school principals talking about it from the school's perspective and from the principal's role. As you know, Commissioner Repolette was a high school principal himself, and so we had a conversation at uh, Union County Votech's um, Black Box Theater um, and uh, a wonderful occasion that really gave that perspective and, and an in, interesting and obviously a, a you know, frontline perspective. Uh, this one, and it came a little bit out of a couple folks coming up to me and, and saying, what about the college and career perspective on that? Um, and I said, don't worry, it's coming. And so um, a couple months later, uh, this is the second in the series, which is gonna explore that question, college and career readiness, um, as, as the state uh, seeks to define what a diploma stands for and how to measure it. We will uh, have a third in the fall uh, session sp specifically around assessment and uh, the notion of exit testing and graduation tests. It's really been a very, um, everyone's totally gotten along on that topic. Um, and so I really figure that's gonna be just a, a quick little consensus build, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, we'll touch on that obviously today too because I want to hear from our folks um, on the panels, uh, their perspectives on it. But that, that will be a session just on that. And then the current plan, um, but these are evolving, um, is by the end of the year doing a fourth one that really explores some of the best practices and in innovations around this topic. And uh, you know, goes into some programs that are really um, you know, breaking the mold a bit and exploring that a little bit and, and hopefully using that uh, to to um, explain the occasion, or explain the issues going forward, and, and hopefully taking New Jersey to, to new heights. Um, this is our first, I think, Steve, you can confirm, our first evening um, roundtable. We've done close to 100 roundtables in our nine years. 
Um, and uh, this is the first one we, we figured with educators, uh, especially doing it in the morning doesn't attract many of them. Um, and so we, we said, uh, let's give it a try. Obviously, we are at um, Mercer County uh, Community College, also a, a, a place that, that deals with this issue all the time. And I certainly want to thank uh, them for hosting this event and, and providing this space for us. Um, and uh, we basically, it's going to split into two. I'm going to have an opening conversation with uh, Michael Cohen, and then we will do a, a, and that will last for you know 45 minutes or so, and then we will have um, a conversation with a panel of four that will go for a similar amount of time. Unlike those who have been to our previous ones, um, where we do uh, cards that people pass up to the moderator and the like, and, and try to integrate them. Um, I really want to have this much more interactive with the audience. And this is a small enough group that um, we're going to pass the mic a little bit. And I've, I've warned a couple of you out there that I'm coming for you. Um, and, but we also, those who, who, we did get a bunch of really great questions in the, in the sign up. But I'm sure the, you know, the conversation is going to spur some others as well. Um, about these events, as I said, we've done close to um, 100 of them. They're really core to our mission of trying to bring folks together on these issues and not just do everything online and have these conversations. I think getting folks in the same room is really important. Um, and so these have provided that opportunity. And, and the fact that we can do three or four on the same subject gives it some length. Um, as many of you might know, um, we had a recent, uh, we recently got married uh, to NJTV News. Um, and they are, they are now our partners in crime. And I want to thank uh, Michael Hill, who is with us today, who is going to be live streaming this. So uh, for those of, uh, who couldn't make it or got lost in the floods or something, um, this will be archived on our site as well as uh, on NJTVs and is obviously going to be shareable. So, so please uh, share this with your friends and colleagues as well. And it's really important for me to say, um, that we couldn't do this without the support of two main categories of people. One is our members and our donors. And we will be starting in the next few days our summer campaign. And you'll be besieged with emails for a few days. And the only way you can stop those emails is, of course, donating. And if you want to donate now, I can't guarantee you won't get the first email, but I can promise you, you probably won't get the second. So, but that support is critical for us. Um, you know, even in, in our new um, our new world with NJTV, who is also a nonprofit, we can't exist without the support of, of those donors. So please, uh, if if you can, um, donate what you can afford, and then also sponsors. These events don't happen without sponsors, um, and it's you know, and they certainly don't. They especially don't happen for free. Uh, we all go to a lot of conferences where we pay tickets and. And the, and the cost of them, we don't charge for these things and because we want the public to be invited and welcomed. And, um, but that wouldn't happen without support from, from sponsors who make that uh, possible. So um, I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot, our business development director, uh, to tell you a little bit about our sponsors and then we can get the show going. Steve. Thank you, John, and welcome everyone. Um, first, I'd like to point out that the um, video and the podcast, which will come from this event as well, will be packaged up and we will forward that to you um, afterwards uh, with a link to a page. It contains all of it and um, that'll be shareable and uh, accessible. So 
if you weren't, well, obviously everyone here is able to uh, take this in, but those who are not will have access. <clears throat> Our sponsors are very important. We can't do this, as John said, without them, and um, we are, we're very pleased to be able to say we've got the support of three incredible organizations um, today, and uh, I'd like to say a few words on their behalf. Um, firstly, ETS, which is a New Jersey-based, not-for-profit assessment organization. ETS is a global industry leader committed to its mission of advancing quality and equity in education. It provides a broad range of innovative measurement solutions, including high-quality summative and non-summative assessments designed to help advance student learning. ETS is proud to call New Jersey its home and is invested in promoting educational opportunities for the students of our state. I'd like to thank also Pearson, whose mission is to help people progress in their lives through learning. And to that end, Pearson combines world-class educational content and assessment, powered by services and technology, to enable at scale more effective teaching and personalized learning. Pearson's local headquarters is in Hoboken, where more than 400 employees work to support the company's North American business, as well as its finance, global product, legal, human resources, and technology functions. Pearson is a leader in education's digital revolution. The company's research-based learning solutions strive to close the gap between the skills of today and the jobs of tomorrow to offer all the freedom and flexibility to accomplish their goals. Finally, also like to thank Public Consulting Group. PCG provides to federal, state, and local agencies solutions in the areas of health, human services, and education. With local offices in Princeton and Newark, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, PCG employs across the U.S. over 2,200 full-time employees who help schools, districts, and the state education agencies improve their programs and processes, optimize financial resources, and improve outcomes for students and teachers. PCG's education technology solutions, such as ED Plan, provide educators and administrators with tools and insights to gather, manage, and analyze data collaborate more effectively, and to more meaningfully engage critical, critical stakeholders like parents in the education process. So thanks again to our three sponsors, ETS, Pearson, and Public Consulting Group, and thanks everyone for being here. And uh, back to John, and we'll get the program started. Thank you. And one other piece of uh, logistics, um, we also, you should have received when you came in uh, a survey, which we ask you to fill out um, before you leave and either leave it, you can leave it on the table or you can leave it at the front desk where you came in. Uh, really important to us to get that feedback and, and get a sense uh, from you how these events are going, how we can improve them, uh, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. Um, I thank you in advance for doing that. So let's get going. Um, I'd like to introduce, uh, as I said, we're going to be having a conversation first with uh, Mike Cohen, uh, president, president of Achieve, Inc. Uh, join us, Mike. And we need, speaking of mics, we need two of those mics. It's you. Sit there. Mike and I, Mike and I, there, ooh, okay. Um, 
Mike and I go a ways back, um, but I'll, I'll give you a, a, a quick introduction and, and he can tell you a lot more. Uh, he's been a, a president of Achieve Inc. and he will explain what Achieve Inc. is, but it has been a, a, a big voice in, in the issue, in the standards and, and a assessment issue for a long time. Uh, he's been president since 2003. Uh, before that, he was director of education policy for the Governor's Association. Uh, and director of Planning and Policy for the Association of State Boards of Ed, Education. I know there's some um, State Board of Education members or former members in the room and who may have met Michael, Mike along the way. He was also the Assistant Secretary of Education under President Clinton, uh, Special Assistant uh, for Education to President Clinton as well, right? And then Senior Advisor uh, to former Secretary uh, Richard Riley. Um, and where I first, I wouldn't say this is where we met, but it, it sounds like it was our first uh, encounter um, in, in, in one way or the other. I was a brand new reporter um, to education, and then I think this was 1996, uh, at, at that time at the Bergen Record. I had just been on the job as an education writer there for a year or two. Um, and I was assigned to go cover um, the uh, Goals 2000 Summit up at IBM headquarters in Nyack or somewhere up there over the border. Um, and didn't know much, but I figured I'd learn a lot. At the time, Christy Whitman was, was governor. Um, so I zipped up there all confident, covering, you know, President Clinton, this is a great opportunity, um, you know, to make my name at the, at the record at the time. Um, you know, run up there, do all my research, get to the door, learn for the first time that if you're going to go see the president, you have to get there at least two hours early uh, for Secret Service uh, clearance. Um, so I ended up following the summit from a car in the parking lot um, and learning a lot about um, standards and assessment from that perspective, but obviously not getting to see any of the players. And I sat with, fortunately, I was not the only reporter. I actually became good friends with the other reporter in the car as we both listened to it. Um, an early lesson in college and career readiness, don't be late to, to work. Um, but I clearly didn't learn that soon enough. And then as everybody was leaving, including the president, they opened the door and I rushed in. So I was that intrepid reporter who basically tried to collect as much in information as I could after the fact. Turns out that this guy did get there early um, and was working for President Clinton at the time um, and had a perspective where I think you, you talked about how you had to brief him about, about the event. Um, remind me of, of that start in our, our careers and then I'm gonna ask you a little bit about um, Achieve and, right. and the history of this discussion. So ha ha happy to tell that story, but I'm really happy to be here and be part of this conversation I have in a variety of ways. Uh, I've been connected to education in New Jersey, uh, not, well, I'll tell you in a minute, uh, but connected and, and pleased to be part of the conversation here. And I know there are a lot of really important issues that you're addressing that we've had some experience with at Achieve, so I hope I can, can bring some perspective to that. But it turns out, John, that while you were in the parking lot in, in a car not getting in, I was in the parking lot for some of that same time because one of the things that I did at the summit, I was there for the entire time, and the president flew in the second day of the summit to give his major speech. And my job, among my jobs, was to go out to the special trailer that they had for him to hold in, in the 
uh, parking lot and brief him on what was going on in the summit and what he had missed and what he needed to know. So I'm sure somewhere in there we sort of encountered each other <laughs> in, in the parking lot, but um, uh, I did have an easier time getting back in the building than, uh, than, than you did. By the way, it, it, it's ironic in a sense that one of the major outcomes of that summit was the establishment, the founding of Achieve. That summit was held, you mentioned Goals, to, goals 2000. Uh, for those of you who are, you know, can remember that, uh, that was the federal government's first effort to support standards-based reform. Uh, and it was somewhat controversial. That not everyone was equally thrilled. Yeah, just a little bit. Not everyone was thrilled with the federal government having anything to do with, with um, uh, standards which touch curriculum, et cetera. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of places in which it was quite controversial. The driving force behind that summit, which was led by uh, business leaders, including um, Art Ryan here at Prudential and Lou Gerstner at um, IBM and a variety of others, um, and governors from all 50 states. I think there were 45 of the 50 who were there. The idea was to get business leaders and a bipartisan group of governors together right, to settle down the politics of standards-based reform, literally take it back from the federal government and put the states in charge of it so that it could proceed uh, in, a, in a depoliticized uh, context, right, and so that there could be more attention to the quality and implementation of standards. And the out, one of the outcomes of the summit was a, was a decision to form an organization whose primary responsibility would be to help states improve the quality of standards and assessments. It took them about two years after, the, the year after they founded it, to figure out its name, which was Achieve. So um, I was literally there at the founding of Achieve, and, and our job, again, was primarily to focus on improving the quality uh, and, uh, of state standards and assessments and accountability. That whole bundle of things around standards-based reform is what Achieve was, was created to, to support. So give a little history of how that's gone. Um, I might add that it's still controversial. So, <laughs> so you did not necessarily solve that problem. But um, no, you know, certainly not. Obviously, um, goals 2000, American Diploma Project, uh, Common Core, yeah. um, you know, park testing, smarter balance testing. These have all uh, been offshoots of that. Yes. And, and um, give me a, a little bit of a history lesson on. Sure. Really, really briefly. Um, so shortly before I got to Achieve, uh, the organization launched a research project. To tr in, in the, so the context for this was uh, uh, high school exit exams in about half the states, including New Jersey, were controversial, right? And one of the things that Achieve thought would be important to do was to, f if these are all about high school graduation, to try to wrap our arms around the evidence about what are the essential literacy and mathematics skills that a high school graduate needs to have in order to succeed after high school, uh, thinking that that would at least provide some context for the debate about testing. I won't go through the details of the research, but it involved lots of interaction with employers, uh, with people recently uh, entering the workforce, with college faculty as well as system heads, all designed to try to get a handle on what are the most essential skills. After doing that work in five states with lots of advisors and lots of input around the country, we identified a set of what we call the American Diploma Project, which is the name of the project, the American Diploma Project Benchmarks. You might think of them as culminating high school standards in math and literacy. 
Uh, and they were pretty well received. Uh, they were pretty quite thoughtful and pushed the envelope, particularly in terms of critical thinking and problem solving and, 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 and communications and skills like that. And after we put those, um, those uh, benchmarks out, we started to ask the question, does anybody actually need to demonstrate that they have those skills in order to earn a high school diploma? And so we conducted a number of, of follow-up studies. One was, in order to learn the math skills that we had identified, uh, turns out you would have to take uh, math through Algebra 2, right, in order to learn what we had identified as essential. Uh, and so we asked the question, well, how many states do students actually have to take Algebra 2 in order to earn a diploma? So the answer to that question in 2004 was two. Two states required it. One was Texas, one was Arkansas, and both of them had adopted the policy weeks before our survey went out. So um, uh, th this was not a widely, this was not a, a widespread a long history there. No, that's yeah. right. But we also looked at uh, a number of state exit exams. What did they, what did those tests measure and what did it take to pass them? New Jersey was one of the states that participated in that along with Ohio and Texas and Florida and Massachusetts and one other state that doesn't come to mind now. The short version of that research was again focusing on mathematics. Most of the uh, items on the test measured eighth grade level math, right? And in order, they went up to 10th grade, but mostly eighth grade level math. And in order to pass those tests and be eligible for a diploma, you basically needed to demonstrate eighth grade level math skills. Our take at the time was that doesn't seem to be too demanding given the gap between what it takes to pass the test and, um, uh, and what it actually takes to be uh, college and career ready. I forgot what the rest of the question was, but I'll turn this back to you to yeah, keep I it mean, moving I, forward. I, and tell, yeah, move, move more, more recent in terms of how that evolved into uh, the Common Core and, right. and, okay. and where we you know, sort of bring us to the present um, in terms of it, Great. as well as how this has played out and how, how it played out in other states. I think most of the folks in this room know how it played out here. Yes. And, and it had its contentious moments, but, but also some national context. Right. So out of the research that I just described, uh, we challenged, a, uh, uh, first of all, there was a summit of governors and business leaders in 2005 that uh, we helped uh, sponsor along with the Governors Association, and we challenged um, uh, uh, participants there, governors, business leaders, chief state school officers, higher ed leaders, right, to uh, take, undertake four steps. One is to actually go through a process of aligning the expectations for high school graduation, in particular the standards, with the evidence in their state about the demands of college and work, right? What did you re really need to do? What were employees telling you? What were um, uh, college faculty telling you about the skills that students needed. We challenged each state to do that. We challenged them once they figure that out to make sure that students are required to take courses that teach those standards, that someplace in their high school assessment system to actually measure whether kids met those standards, and that somewhere in the accountability system there was some attention paid to whether students graduated from high school actually well prepared for post-secondary success. So we challenged states to do that and we offered to help a small group of them if they wanted some help from us. Uh, within six months, 35 states had signed on to undertake that work, and we had what we called the American Diploma Project Network, which was a vehicle for helping each state right, carry out that work and get help from others and learn from others. One of the things that came out of that was we 
work with teams of content experts in math and literacy in as many states as we're interested to help them sort through the evidence in their own state and figure out what should our uh, high school graduation standards in those subjects be. And for a variety of reasons, it turned out that the more those states shared information with each other, the more they looked at evidence about what the real world demands were, the more similar their standards looked, right? Prior to that, math standards in particular were literally all over the map. Uh, when we looked about at what about 15 of the states had done, we could identify, thought we were coining a term then, literally a common core of expectations right across those states that they, that they held in common, pretty much you know, articulated in the same way. That turned out to be, that, that work and that evidence turned out to be an, an existence proof of the idea that states could work together to develop common standards and there was tremendous interest in that, mainly because uh, uh, leaders in those states and educators understood that the demands that students needed to meet once they got out of high school really did not vary much right from state to state to state. We're in a global economy. Uh, people go to college all over the country. Uh, uh, there was really at that moment in time thought that we don't need 50 different sets of standards. We need to figure out a way to pool resources and work towards a high quality set of common standards. There were other forces at work as well, but that is a big part of, of sort of what the anchor for the Common Core was. Out of that came a question from the states of, well, what about the tests, right? Should, do we each need our own tests or can we have some common tests? And the federal government stepped in then with Race to the Top uh, and put $350 million out for a competitive process. Uh, it turns out there were two sets of states, one the park states that New Jersey was, the other the smarter balance states, but two consortia of states worked together to develop high quality assessments. A couple other things happened along the way towards implementation I'm sure we'll get into, but that at least is the quick story of at least where Achieve started and how we helped play into some of the developments uh, in recent years. So where are we now? <clears throat> well, it's a pretty complicated yeah. uh, 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 picture. A uh, couple things. Uh, one is um, uh, politics reared its head, head again, uh, partly over federal involvement issues. Uh, partly over the federal push uh, to require the tests to be used for teacher evaluation. That turned out to be a bad idea. Um, uh, at a minimum, it was too much too soon, and it's not at all clear that that was the best way to proceed anyway. But as you all know, that engendered a fair amount of pushback uh, on the standards and the tests sort of all rolled in together. If it's used for teacher evaluation and or if it, the federal government had anything to do with it, there were at least several ends of the political spectrum that... Was it, let me interject. Was it a bad idea or bad politics? Did you think that oh. it, it could work as, as an accountability measure or it just was... You mean for teacher evaluation? Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I was all on board for using those tests as a measure of student achievement for you know, an outcomes-focused accountability system for districts and schools. Using it for teachers was a, a different matter. Uh, harder to design tests for those purposes, uh, not so smart to build, to, to, um, uh, to rush that aspect of accountability when we all knew that the field was not yet where it needed to be in terms of the availability of curriculum and instructional materials. There's a sequencing and staging issue there. And um, uh, 
Again, you know, think back to the time. Hardly anyone thought that the procedures and policies that were in place to evaluate teachers then were particularly good. Right? Teachers didn't think it amounted to very much. It was sort of, you know, fly-by visits, right? Very little useful feedback. Uh, it all had a sort of check-the-box feel to it. So there was no doubt, at least in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds, that uh, we needed to do a much better job uh, for how we evaluate teachers and provide feedback to them. And having some evidence about whether the students were learning certainly seemed like it should be an important part of that. But it's a big step from that idea to the way that it manifested itself. And again, I was not thrilled with it at the front end, but for sure, looking back, that was, that was a bad move. And what is the state of the, the standards movement now, in your, in your view? I mean, I, I certainly, it's a very far cry from um, in the federal role mm -hmm. of certainly 1996, but I would even say 2006 and not even that long ago, the federal role is, is as a reporter, it's not nearly where, where it was in those days. Right. Um, so but, I, but the movement in general, I, don't, I think there's a pushback on in state level as well. Well, in, in I, 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 there may be some pushback, but I think the standards, state standards are alive and well. Uh, Achieve has done several studies looking at the standards that states have adopted once they revi reviewed and revised the, revised the Common Core and, and, and needed something else. <clears throat> so sometimes those are just co cosmetic changes. Uh, occasionally they were, they were some significant improvements in them, but overall, right, the math and literacy standards in all but a handful of states reflect, I think, our best understanding of what the, you know, of, of what the characteristics of strong standards are. So I think the standards themselves are by and large pretty in pretty good shape. Another organization that does this kind of work, the Fordham um, uh, uh, Institute, has a slightly dimmer view of it, but there's not dramatic difference. I think overall math and, and literacy standards are in pretty good shape. Achieve also played a role in the development of the next generation science standards, which, by, by, by the way, uh, I, first of all, went very smoothly and without much political um, uh, fighting at all, even though there's tremendous potential for that when you think about some hot topics in science. Secondly, the federal government um, uh, had nothing to do with it, and that certainly helped yes, make, right. it easier, <laughs> make it easier uh, to, to do. But we also had a different process for this that had more engagement of scientists and science educators and science teachers, et cetera, than the Common Core did. So we, we learned a lot from the Common Core about how to do it do it differently. And by and large, the condition, the state of state standards in science is quite strong also. So I think the standards are good. The issue here is that standards are not enough, and standards and tests are not enough, right? If I had to do it all over again, I'd still develop good, high-quality tests. Uh, I would devote much more time and energy and urgency to the development of high-quality curriculum and instructional materials. Uh, and to focusing professional learning opportunities for teachers around the selection and use of those materials, as opposed to having high quality mat materials over here of unknown quality and not a systematic way of, of evaluating that, right? And then once they're picked, professional development over here that might focus on generic instructional skills, but not tied to the curriculum that teachers are teaching. I think we need a much more coherent approach between standards, curriculum, uh, and professional learning if we want to bring about results for all kids. 
There was, um, and I'm going to bring in a question here. Um, somebody in the audience uh, who I who I know um, has a question about a, a component of standards, or at least of education, um, that he wanted to, you know, explore a little bit with you. Mark Bedron, are you still here? Sorry. There you are. Okay, Mark, go ahead. Now, does it help to have a mic? Um, I, I, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Let me okay, go ahead. But I'll, I'll give it to you. Sorry, <laughs> it helps for everyone else. All right. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, being here and for your comments. You know, as we try to define what college or career ready means, what life ready means, what we want every student who walks out the door in 12th grade, what skills and habits of mind mm -hmm. we want them to have. And I hear you mentioned the soft skills, right? The communication, the critical thinking, the problem solving. And our employers are screaming for entry level employees with those skills. How do you think? social emotional learning plays into that whole equation. A lot of people think it's the, it's the backbone of soft skills. You can't be a good communicator if you don't have empathy. How do you think that plays into you know, so, so the I, diploma? I think the social emotional skills are really important and I'm glad you asked that, uh, that, that question. So Achieve historically is focused on academics. That's what we're created to do. Um, I think it's an unfortunate byproduct of our saying we figured out the math and literacy skills and now we're working on the science skills, right? led people to think, well, it's just about academics. Not really. So, you know, as we reflect on what we've learned through our work at Achieve and what lots of other folks have, have learned, and we're, we're beginning to try to wrap our arms around all of this, right? Uh, to be college and career ready requires a blend of academic skills, for sure, um, uh, um, professional and technical skills, Right, that are you know payoff in careers in particular, uh, and social emotional skills that has to be packaged together. Right, we have not yet. We've been paying attention to what states and districts are trying to do in in this space. There's a lot of activity underway, uh, which is really important, and we want to encourage it. We also think we're getting close to a time when you know we need to pull some people together who've got really experience in working on these things and try to figure out what are the ways in which this can be blended in a more coherent way. And I'm not sure I even know how to talk about what a coherent approach would be, but I think it needs to be more than there's the academic and there's the you know, social emotional and there's technical. I think we've got to figure out how both in terms of a profile of a high school graduate and in terms of what a coherent curriculum looks like, right, or a set of you know, curricular pathways, we've got to figure out how to put these pieces together in a in a more coherent way, and I think that's a big part of the work ahead. How do you standardize social and emotional skills? I'm not sure you do, to tell you the truth. Um, and and, the, and um, I would not start out by trying to figure out what is the standardized test for social and emotional skills uh, look like. Right? I, first of all, I'd start out figuring out how do we incorporate the ways to promote and develop them into the classroom, into the school, into life of st students. And how can we figure, and what kind of indicators can we look for that students, individual students are developing those, right? And I would, so I would not rush to create a standardized test. I'd look for other ways to find evidence for it. And I'm not sure I'd rush to put social emotional into the accountability system just yet. Maybe at some point in some way, but we got a lot to figure out before we go down that, that road. Where does New Jersey in, in the, scheme of things um, 
fit in all this? How does it compare with other states who are who have gone through this? We've you know we've yeah. had. I, I know you're familiar with our debates mm -hmm. um, and and steps along the way and the change of the Common Core to the right. student learning standards and the like. Um, you know, how do we compare? So let me tell you the things that hit me when I think when I let me tell you the things that hit me when I think about that. One is when I look at the at the evidence of academic performance in New Jersey, right? You've actually made quite a few gains, right, over the last three, four, five years. You can see that. I know Pelk is not popular, but you're giving it. And if you look at the trends on that, it's pretty impressive compared to other states around the country. And I mention that because when I pay attention from a distance to the debates in New Jersey, I don't hear a lot of "Wow, we've actually done a really good job here. We should be." proud of ourselves. I don't get that sense. And uh, if, I, if you all have it and I missed it, fine. But if not, you should take a little bit of time to reflect on all that you've, you've accomplished, particularly in difficult times. That's one thing. Secondly, on the testing issue, I've been tuned into that debate. And I get, particularly in this context and particularly in light of uh, the court, recent court ruling that there's a lot of discussion going on about what grade should we test kids in and what subjects, right? Is it, an exit, is it an exit exam? Is it not an exit exam? And lots of states are having that debate. What is often missing in that, and I haven't heard it raised here, is exactly what is the point of those tests? What's the purpose of them? Because absent that question, who cares whether a ninth grader has to take a test or a 12th grader? has to take a test. If the only reason for giving it is because we need a test, who cares? On the other hand, if you want the test to be something that actually signals to students, parents, post-secondary institutions, whether a student is ready to enter and succeed in credit-bearing courses, that is, is a, a test that is a door opener for students, ninth grade test is not gonna work for that. Now, if you want a door opener, you need to think about it differently. If you just want a test, for the sake of testing, who cares what grade? But but I would urge you all, I don't know, you know, I know the legislature is either gonna act or not act soon. I'm not quite up to date on all of it, but find a way to step back and have a conversation about what's the purpose of testing, particularly at the high school level. What do we what do we want those results to mean for the students who take it? And and if you can't answer that question, try to avoid the unbearable pressures you're under of making a snap decision for what the testing system ought to be and figure out a way to buy some time to have those conversations. Because you have the conversation after you've made a decision, it's a little late. Have you generally achieved, as I don't recall if they've taken a position on exit, te exit tests or not, have they? I mean, is that a... Is that a policy? So actually, we've never taken a position on that. Now but he, you can. This no, is your opportunity. But, 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 he, but he, here's our practice on that. So first of all, we did a study of high school ed ex exit exams in 2004 or five. I think I mentioned that. And what we found was that they weren't all that demanding, right? It didn't seem unreasonable to expect students to meet those, you know, to be able to pass those tests. It's different than saying everyone should have an exit exam, but we thought they weren't unreasonable. As our own work around college and credit college and career readiness proceeded and our work looking at assessments. We looked at high school exit exams. We looked at what the ACT and the SAT encompass and AccuPlacer measure. Right, conclusion I came to is that the higher the stakes on the test, the lower the bar will be, right? You can't have, high, you can't have a high bar for graduation tests, so you'll set it at maybe the ninth grade level instead of the eighth grade level. It won't be a high bar. 
if, by the way, same is true for higher ed. If you set a really high bar for a placement test so that you, you, you know, have to be able to perform really well before you can take a credit-bearing course, then you'll have a higher remediation rate. So I'm personally interested in trying to figure out how you have assessments that is the term I use, are door openers rather than door closers. So uh, uh, in, in work that Achieve did before PARC, uh, with an Algebra two test that a number of states, including New Jersey, participated in. Uh, we tried to figure out a way to make sure that what the test could do is tell students whether they were ready to do credit-bearing work when they got to college and tell post-secondary institutions that students were ready to do that so that the student knew, if I did well enough, then when I go to college, I won't have to take any remedial courses. Or the student knew, you know what? I just finished 11th grade, it turns out my math scores aren't high enough. I want the school to help me figure out what's got it, what do I need to be paying attention to in the senior year so that when I walk into community college or four-year college in the fall, I can actually pass a placement test and, and you know, be engaged in credit-bearing work. Now, I should tell you that the information value of telling a high school student that they're ready to do credit-bearing work is constrained by the fact that nobody back then knew that there was such a thing as remedial work, right? So they thought once I got admitted to college, I'm a college student, I'll be doing college work, and it's only when they walked in, right, in September or whenever they showed up at campus and found out they had to take a placement test, and back then about 30% of the students nationally wound up needing to take remedial courses. If only we had told them that sooner, their preparation for college could have been a little bit a little bit different. There are others. Uh, I want to give opportunity if there's folks who have a specific question. Okay, just looking. Um, w one of the quickly, and I'm just always curious. Lessons learned from other countries on this. Um, you know, have they? You know, we often suffer from this reputation as our our students don't, aren't doing as well as as others, and and we're you know behind on a variety of tests. Have they? Have other countries, you know, have some lessons they can teach us? They can try. Um, Here, need your mic. They can try. Uh, so we do, uh, uh, you know, we do not rank very high when we compare our performance to uh, performance of students in other countries. And it's hard to see that and not notice some really fundamental differences between how education is organized here versus uh, in, uh, in, in other countries, particularly um, uh, industrial, you know, uh, uh, European countries and and places like Japan and China um, and Korea. Uh, so the biggest difference is they have a much more coherent approach, right, to standards and testing and curriculum and professional learning than we do. Those are highly fragmented here. Different organizations in different parts of the systems make decisions about each of them and um, uh, and, and, and there's no particular reason to think they come together in a coherent way. This hit me quite powerfully. Uh, one year I uh, participated in a, in a conference with the, in, with the Asian Pacific uh, Rim countries. We had actually looked at standards in a lot of other countries and uh, had been asked to come and do a presentation on what we learned. So uh, one of the things that struck us in the math standards is we thought the Japanese math standards really did not have the kinds of, of critical thinking skills and higher order skills that were characteristic of other countries, including what we were trying to do in the US, 
because their standards translated into English basically said, students should know how to do something, right? And here, that means they'll memorize it, right? So prior to my giving my presentation, uh, the panelist before me was from Japan and showed a, a video of a lesson, right? Basically from lesson study uh, uh, about how a lesson unfolds, what the teacher does, how students are engaged, et cetera, et cetera. It was quite impressive, quite rigorous. And when I got up and said, well, gee, I don't understand because uh, by our analysis, you guys don't have very rigorous, rigorous standards at all in math. And they pointed out to me that when they say low in Japan, it means all the stuff that I saw in that 45-minute uh, lesson. Um, so, so they had a way of both communicating the expectations but also delivering a curriculum and preparing and supporting educators so that they could deliver high-quality instruction aligned to high, high expectations. We just don't have that. And so where it happens, it almost happens, if not by chance, then by virtue of what a strong leader and a strong system could do. But it's, and, 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 and I think that works to the disadvantage of, of the most disadvantaged students in the, in the country. They're more likely to be in systems that are just fragmented in a variety of ways and don't get what's needed. So that's, to me, that's the biggest the biggest difference is that when you've got places, when you see other, when you when you see school systems here do what other countries routinely do, and again, put together high quality curriculum, uh, high quality classroom assessments, high quality summative assessments, strong supported um, job embedded uh, uh, professional learning opportunities around the use of those materials, you see better results, particularly if that's sustained year after year. And you're saying it can't happen here just because I'm, I'm it's the American way that we, we're not coherent and, well, it's, uh, on anything these days, or? or you know, you don't, I don't really want you to put words in my mouth, but <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is much harder to, to do that here. I mean, I don't know a lot about how you deal with curriculum issues in New Jersey, but if you like other states, first of all, curriculum is a local control issue, right? Um, uh, 600, 600 yes. different local controls. Right. Secondly, I want to make a counterpoint for in a second, but uh, uh, so local control, um, lots of different ways that curriculum comes into the classroom. I'm sorry if Pearson and ETS are here, but I mean, sometimes it's a rigorous review process. Sometimes it's the relationship between the sales force, right, and folks in the district who are making the decision. Uh, if you look at how curriculum and textbook selection decisions are made, right, the extent to which the quality and rigor and alignment to standards places a, plays a powerful role with really good tools to analyze that stuff is pretty limited. And the folks who are in charge of, of, of textbook selection may or may not have anything to do with the professional development program in the district. I mean, it could go on, but that's... Yep. But I want to point out one other thing. So a counterexample to all of this, Louisiana is a local control state. They care a lot about curriculum and, 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 and textbooks and professional learning. And what they did was, um, first of all, create a state review process to evaluate the quality of uh, textbooks that were up for, for consideration. They did that on a statewide basis. They used tools, uh, frankly, that reflected work that Achieve had done in how to evaluate alignment and student achievement partners had done. So they, they, they built on what was out there, right? They basically said to districts, um, and they had a, a sort of a, a joint purchasing effort, but if a district bought 
a textbook that was rated quite highly, right, the state could get them a discount on that. They made it easier to, buy to identify and buy quality. And then they fund organizations that provide uh, support to districts, particularly, I'm pretty sure in, in, in Louisiana, it's high poverty and often rural districts, right, of limited capacity of their own. They, they provide, they fund organizations that have a demonstrated capacity to provide professional learning opportunities for educators around the implementation of curriculum. So not impossible to do even in a local control state, but it takes intentionality to do that. You've got to do something other than the ordinary practice. I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, you have some folks in the room who are, you know, who are right in the middle of this process now. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, as you referred to, certainly the assessment uh, decisions to come. But your advice to a place like New Jersey as it goes, <coughs> goes through this process, it, it has been contentious. Uh, along the way, but as you said, there's also been some, you know, some real gains. Right. You know, what, what's your your free advice uh, to this room as we as we deal with this going forward? Okay. Well, prefacing the fact that you get what you pay for. Um, <laughs> uh, on the testing issue, again, I think my major advice is what I said before: get really clear about the purposes, right, or the primary purpose of of the testing system and whatever tests you're going to select. And that ought to be something that a diverse group of educators and advocates and the like could come together on. Because it's really a conversation about what's the purpose of the system. Right? Start with that, figure out a way to postpone you know, premature decisions, but start with that and come to, come to consensus around that. And then have a conversation, you know, as part of that is a conversation of what would the test need to look like in order to to play that purpose is what kind of results do we want to be able to communicate to people? At some point, this gets pretty technical, but I think you need to push the discussion as far as you can around clarity of purpose and how it's going to be used. And frankly, for the high school level in particular, ask the question, why would a kid take this seriously? Right? And if the best answer you've got is because he or she won't graduate unless they pass, it's an answer, but you'd like a better answer than that, I think. So that's my first advice. Uh, the second is, I know from our experience in two efforts to help groups of states develop tests, it's hard work. And it takes time, right? You can't rush it uh, or you'll get lousy tests. Uh, so, so figure out a way to buy and build in some time for it. And third thing I'd say is uh, make sure that there is a lot of support and information available for everyone. So parents need to understand what these new tests are about, how they're going to be used, how they're not going to be used, right? How they understand the results. Uh, make sure that you've got, you know, good communications people helping you do that so that you don't need a PhD in psychometrics in order to understand the score report, um, which I discovered when my kids were in school. I didn't know what the hell they were telling me. Seriously. Um, so, so. So think about the tools and supports that are needed for everyone in the system to really understand the purpose of the test, the uses of the test, what the results mean, et cetera. Because no matter what you do, whether you make it an exit exam or not, right, most tests from most students and educators are high stakes tests because they want to do well. I don't know of any teachers right, who think, well, it's you know, it's not for accountability or it's not the kid can graduate either way. So who cares if they don't do well on the test? No teacher want, wants to confront a student or parents and say, you know, 
He didn't do very well on the test, but it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Let's go on to something else. So these are high stakes in a very personal way, and I think you've got to do everything you can to make sure it's a high-quality test and that people have all the information they need to prepare themselves right, for the test. And I don't mean test prep, but to understand what they're, you know, what they're walking into, what the test is about, how it's going to be used, et cetera. I would just place an awful big priority on on that. I think, you know, it slows some things down. It'll pay dividends for the state and its kids over time. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Mike. I think that you gave us a great context uh, for the conversation going forward. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you uh, sit out the next round, um, and but certainly feel free to chime in as we go. Can I ask the, our panelists to join us? Well, we have a, a fabulous panel um, of folks here, um, you know, to just discuss this from many different perspectives. Um, I, I wanted to get you know rock stars in the room um, in in each of their in each of their fields. Um, you know, people who've lived front line. I've learned there are a few of you who've, well, actually, I think most of you have have come at this from different directions. Um, and, and have perspective not just from where your current job is, but also prior to that. We have uh, Sue Henderson on, the, on my right, uh, president of New Jersey City University. I think she also a 17-year high school teacher, so uh, certainly some, some perspective there. Um, Jean Wadi, uh, an entrepreneur, um, leads the uh, largest African-American-owned uh, IT staffing company in the country, is that right? Um, but he also wanted to talk about growing up in, at Neptune High School uh, and, and what he learned there and, and the experience he had there. Uh, Linda Eno, um, who much of this is a conversation for her because she has to do all the hard work. We just get to have a conversation. You have to, you have to take it home, but assistant commissioner uh, who oversees standards and assessment, um, but also a former teacher and before that a, a nurse. Um, and has obviously the perspective of, uh, you, were, you said you were at Allied Health with the Monmouth County Schools, is that right? Teaching there and then principal at Biotech. Yep, um, and then um, Aaron Fickner, who is now with the, the Council of uh, Community Colleges, but also a former labor commissioner who's do done a lot in workforce. So all four of these, these, you know, really uh, some of the smartest people um, uh, in, in the fields, in their respective fields, talking about these issues. And I, I guess I want to start with you, Linda. Um, just give me a little sense, you know, and, and, you, and you heard from Mike, and I'm going to also, I think I'm missing a, a microphone as well. But the state of uh, New Jersey in, in dealing with these issues right now, sort of where are we? Um, and then um, we can explore some of the challenges and, and um, the what's next to it. But here, let me hand you this, and I will... Uh, have a, a, hopefully a couple of mics. Here I go. Yep. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me here. And uh, nice to see so many faces that we've been working so closely with. This is a conversation that's happening across the state right now. What does it mean to be college and career ready? And what should the diploma stand for? So let me say first, New Jersey does an outstanding job. We have fabulous educators here. And by multiple metrics, we are doing a great job with our students. We graduate students at the second highest rate in the nation. Our students in fourth grade are first in the nation in ELA and math. 
our students in eighth grade, second in the nation in ELA and math. We do a good job and there is work to be done. The workplace is changing, the student demographics are changing. We have an opportunity to rethink high school here in New Jersey and it was so interesting to hear Michael's historical perspective because I think it's a little bit back to the future, right? We are looking again, we've made great strides with our focus on college ready and now we need to get a little bit better balance between college and career ready because as students move into the post-secondary landscape, they need more on and off ramps. Our students are needing at higher rates to earn and learn. They need to be able to be um, prepared for um, an opportunity to get college credits, but also to be in the workplace and they need that, um, as, as you've pointed out, Michael, they need that blended set of skills. So, where, where are we with the conversation? We're having great conversations, and I think that Governor Murphy has done a, a wonderful job bringing his agencies together. So last night I was um, at Aaron's launch of 2028. Um, I think there are good conversations happening with OSHI. Department of Labor has been at our presentations around um, Perkins 5 and where we're going with career and technical education. This is not something we're going to figure out ourselves um, at the Department of Education. We need to do this with our partners. But, but what I would say is, we, I agree with Michael, we need to agree on what our exit criteria mean at the articulation point where it's the entrance criteria for the next step. One of his pieces of advice is take your time. Um, <laughs> I'm running out of time, John. <laughs> exactly. How's that going? I mean, there's you know there, there's political pressures to get things done. Uh, you know, administrations don't want to leave this to the next administration. Um, not that you know he's not going to have plenty of time. But I mean, how does how does that run up against the political realities of of you know coming up with some answers here? Well, I don't want to narrow this conversation down to just assessment, right? That's not our our, Nor I, so our, don't worry, yeah. Right, no, yeah. no, and I wasn't worried. I was just clarifying for, for our team and for our audience that while assessment is one piece of this, there's a bigger conversation about defining college and career ready, and it has to do with what experiences we're offering to students um, in their four years with us in high school, um, what that coursework means, how do we avoid repetitious experiences for students, how do we leverage um, our industry partners and our community organizations to provide more meaningful, relevant learning experiences that students can translate and use to better understand their post-secondary opportunities. Students need to understand how their high school experiences match up to a college major, how academic courses and choices align to careers, what it really means to have an industry-valued credential. So while I think that we're making tremendous progress working with our partners around the assessment conversation, and I'm happy that many of them are in the room tonight, but, but I think it's a broader conversation, and, and that's happening many places and not just with the department. Um, how do we really articulate the exit criteria with the entrance criteria? 
Aaron, I want to congratulate you, by the way, on, on the release of, of your report. Um, how do you, you know, the, the issue, and we've, we've talked about how New Jersey students, you know, do very well nationally in terms of uh, student performance and graduation rates and the like, yet they get, and this will be a question for you as well, Dr. Henderson, but they get to colleges and, and many of them face the need for remedial education. Um, and non-credit um, bearing courses that they still have to pay for. Um, and because, um, at least for the moment, Murphy hasn't made your tuition free yet. I, uh, we're, we're working on We're that. working on that. Closer. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But yeah, speak to those, you know, the, the coherence between K to 12 education and higher education. And then, I'll, and Gene, I'll talk to you about business needs too. But, you know, it, there seems to be a lack of coherence on that. And, and how do they, how do you engage each other to actually come up with a, a blueprint that works for the different sectors? That's a great question, and uh, it's wonderful to be here with all of you, and thank you for hosting this very important conversation, and it's great to see so many familiar faces in the audience. As you alluded, we've been working among our 19 community colleges, and I would say welcome to one of our 19 community colleges. It's great to have all of you here on one of our college campuses. We've been working to have our own discussions among the 19 community colleges about what does the future look like. Um, we know that the world is changing rapidly and that we've got to do a better job of preparing not only our students, but students that come to our colleges, um, all of our citizens, all of our residents in New Jersey for that rapidly changing world. And I liked what Linda said, is that we really need to have this fresh discussion about what is it going to look like? What are the skills and abilities and knowledge that people need to have to be successful? I know we talked about essential skills, and I think it really comes back to uh, we live in such a rapidly changing world that while we want to prepare people for specific jobs and careers, uh, and I know this from my job, my work in workforce development, that many people will have 13 jobs and seven careers or whatever the number is. And while uh, the Labor Department has really top-notch labor economists trying to predict the future, none of us in this room can really, uh, really know what the, the job makeup will be. So we have to get back to thinking about critical thinking and problem-solving skills, ability to navigate lots of information and make decisions. Uh, we've got to think about um, making sure that we're preparing people to be engaged civically in their communities. Uh, harder to measure these things with standardized tests, certainly. Um, but I think this is, this is part of what I think will be a lot of discussions about how do we all work together to make that a reality. I want to talk a little bit about developmental education and then turn it over um, because we've seen a real change in our approach in community colleges to developmental education. Well, how do you it, define that? So, so I think in, in the past the, 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 the knee-jerk reaction was to give everybody an AccuPlacer test and, and make a hard line. If you don't do well, you're going to take remedial education until you get to some level and we're going to uh, make it hard to get you into credit-bearing courses. And you find from the data that um, the worst thing you can do um, is to put someone in developmental education and leave them there. They were likely to drop out. They will give up. They will go off. Um, and so our colleges are doing, I think, two sets of reforms. The first is not just to rely on the AccuPlacer to determine who needs developmental education. So many of our colleges are putting in place multiple measures, looking at high school graduation uh, grade point average. Uh, looking at a, a variety of, of things to decide who needs developmental education. So we're trying to reduce the number of people going into developmental education un unnecessarily. The other is to put people into a remedial education experience while they're in credit. So uh, that means teaching and learning and mentoring opportunities um, that are there to support students. And um, so we are working 
um, diligently across our 19 colleges to find the right innovative approaches to remedial education. The other piece, and then I'll pass the baton here, is that it's very, very important for our community colleges and our colleges to continue to build partnerships with high schools. So we have a long-standing partnership through College Readiness Now uh, with funding from the state to build those relationships to help students while they're in high school um, be able to get on a path to college level education. And so that dialogue is critically important as well. Is there, I mean, Linda, you may know this, um, roughly guesstimate the percentage of high schools that have a relationship with a higher ed, is it is it most now where you have these dual credit or um, is it still a fraction? I, I just don't, don't know the statewide picture. We're, so all of our county vocational schools have a relationship do, with higher sure. education. Yep. And I would say that through one or another, about 30% um, have some form. And then that expands. We, we break it out. So there's dual enrollment where they partner. But then there's also APIB, um, state curriculum, all opportunities for students to earn those credits in the post-secondary uh, marketplace. Dr. Anderson, um, speak to, you know, four-year school, uh, he, he, re he referenced some of the things going on in, in, in community colleges, but talk so a little bit about yours. A lot of things that are going on in the four-year institutions are very similar to what that and happening in the community colleges in that we recognize that it's, it's far more beneficial to a student to go ahead and put them in a credit course with wraparound services that then help them understand. The other piece that some schools are doing, and mine included, is that we're understanding that to learn to write is not a one semester, I'm gonna give you an inoculation and you're done, that it's a four year. Uh, because I may learn to write in an English class, but I also am gonna to need to learn how to write in my chemistry class, because I'll have to write technical reports there. So understanding contextual uh, information, I think, is very, very important. Um, mathematics is my field, and so I And you was, taught mathematics in I high school as well? for a long time, okay. and was part of the debate that, you know, what is it the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics would want high school students to know? Uh, what is it the college level students needed to know? And then how do you bring those two things together? But the common thread there is this idea of being able to think critically, problem solve, and problem solve not very simplistic problems, because when you go to work, you're not going to be given something simple. Uh, you're going to have to work in teams, and you're going to have to be able to solve a very complex problem. And that's the piece that I, I think that um, institutions, four-year institutions, are trying to work with high schools to help create environments where the students are working on more complex problems, whether that's in the work environment or whether that's just creating problems that are more realistic, um, uh, one of my classes, we counted the number of trees in Jersey City because uh, the mayor was very interested in knowing what the green footprint was, and that's a data point that he needed. So some of the simple things around that uh, would help them solve much more complex problems, which is what I think the workforce is very interested in. What do you, as, as with a mathematics background and now a, as a college president, you know, there's a lot of discussion, Algebra 1, Algebra 2, statistics. I mean, we haven't talked about sort of the changing uh, math uh, landscape. 
What would you, what do you think every high school? So I, I will share this with you, and this dates me a little bit, that um, I actually learned somewhere along the line how to take a square root by hand. Now, I'm sure that's a skill that's critical today in the workforce, correct? <laughs> Not even. <laughs> um, so what we've got to understand about what's important about mathematics might not be this, the particular skills, like completing the square or differential equations, but what are the, what are the concepts behind it? Uh, those are critical. Those are absolutely This critical. does my math. Yes. <laughs> it does your arithmetic. Yes, right, yes. <laughs> so um, the thing that I think that we need to keep in common is what is it that you need? And right now in business, a lot of statistics is quite important. And again, it's not necessarily the calculation of it, but the understanding of what are, are some, of the, some of the things that come out of the tests that you do. So, Gene, business owner, um, you have a lot of folks come through. Um, your system. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your background and and. Well, um, so I uh, own a IT staffing uh, company uh, called. In Red Diversity. Bank, right? Is it? Sorry? Where is it located? Uh, Red Bank. Red Bank, Red Bank yeah. New Jersey. Yeah. So, I was raised in Neptune, New Jersey, and uh, went through school there. And uh, it was interesting. Now I'm dating myself. I'm 52, and I remember high school being about memorization and rote mm -hmm. learning what you could remember and regurgitate. And you were uh, in, an individual contributor. That's what you were taught to be. You were graded, you know, you, you had your report card, what you did, not what the group did, what you did. Then I, you know, I got my grades and I was a straight A student. I thought I was the smartest thing on the planet until I got accepted to the engineering school at Fairleigh Dickinson and understood that you're not the smartest kid, you're not even the smartest kid <laughs> in your town anymore because there's people from all over the world now when you're, you're, you're competing with them. So once I got my ego in check, I understood the importance of working in a group and collaboration. That was not taught to us in high school. It was what you could do. It was like being a tennis player versus being on a football team. Right? So you were on your own. So I had to process all of this. And the takeaway was, and I laughed when you said about what you learned from, from math, right? Being an engineering major was just a painful experience, and, but it taught you something. And the thing it taught me more than anything else, it wasn't about differential equations and whether you got the problem right, because none of us ever really got it right. It was the process mm -hmm. and how long you would bang your head against that wall trying to figure it out. <laughs> and when you got to the end, it wasn't about being right, it was what degree of right you were and why. And the not giving up piece. So you couldn't pull out your calculator, do it, or go on you know, Wikipedia and pull down some incorrect information and turn it in, <laughs> which is what our kids do today. But that process of frustration and being humbled is what made me a success in business because I'm in the staffing business. Nobody goes to college to be in the staffing business, right? But what I learned in, in, uh, at Fairleigh was collaboration, tenacity, and how, how to bring in the talents of a group to solve a problem. And that's what we do in business every day. And what Linda said really got me going about the various off-ramps, on and off-ramps. That's what it's all about. There, the rate of change in the world today, it's just so fast that you can't sit back like we did in high school and have a generations old approach. 
or even the curriculum. Some of the curriculums that we took in 1986, my brother took in 1976. It was the same, it never changed. You cannot do that in, business, in the business world today. To be successful, you have to be able to move quickly. And what you said about on and off ramps is the perfect example. I'm in the technology business. Everybody that walks across the stage at a college does not have to be an MIT level programmer or coder. There's so many different on and off ramps just in the technology field alone. And we're at full employment. That means that you don't have to necessarily be Albert Einstein to have a good career. You really don't. And we have to stop telling our children, you're an A student, you're a B student, you're a C student. When you're in the world of business, you only have a few A's. And guess what? Most A's don't work well with other A's. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get your, your C plus, your aspirational C's, I call them, and the, and the B's that want to be A's, and you get those folks together. And then you can make some really wonderful things happen. But don't you run it in this, it's just interesting. I had a similar conversation with, with the commissioner and the principals where they talked a lot about the critical thinking skills and the like. And I, you know, I pushed back a bit, but what about learning, being able to read and write, especially journalism, I see that, uh, but certain computational skills. None of you have talked about quote unquote basic skills. Well, um, I can give me and, one little quick example. Yeah, I, I mean, I you're a business owner. You, you want them to be, you know. Writing, 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 and more writing. The, the thing I took away from Neptune High School, going back to the beginning, <laughs> I had the most sadistic, meanest English teacher you'd ever want to have. <laughs> People would do anything to avoid this man's class. His name was Dallas Herbert. Mr. Herbert, I'll never forget his name. That is Mr. now going Mr. across. Mr. Herbert <laughs> would strike fear in your heart. You wouldn't want to go in his classroom. Grammar, everything, he was on you, and you knew you had to go through him to graduate. And I've figured out something, is that that's a skill that you use every day. Whether you're writing an email, you're writing a paper, whether you're doing technical writing, storytelling, name it. Writing is, is, is still one of the fundamental skills you have to have. I use that every day. I may not use differential equations every day, but I write every day. That's one of the basic foundations. I tell people all the time, your documents and your, your, your writing arrives before you do. So before I ever meet you, you write me an email that looks like it's, it's written by somebody in the seventh grade, and then you show up and you're the chief so-and-so officer of whatever company, I'm making a judgment about you. And that, I, I, I'm, I'm a stickler for it. It really does represent who you are, your documents, how you communicate. And then when you show up, like he writes very thoughtfully and he writes with detail, and, and, and that's important. It shows you care, right? So I laugh about this now, because when I was growing up, I had no idea what the various educational environments were, was doing to me as I got older. I had no idea. Today, I, I don't think we can leave it to chance. You have to give the kids an understanding of where they are in the process, and the rainbow of success that they could have. In other words, like I said before, we stratify them too often. You're A class, you're B class. You're advanced placement, you're not even gonna graduate. You're worthless. Some of the most successful business people I know mm -hmm. barely got out of high school. Mm -hmm. 
didn't go to college. I'm first generation. My father worked in a factory for 32 years. Some of the best education I ever got was interning with him at the 3M company on the midnight shift in the summer of 1986. Know what that taught me? Humility. Not everybody has, all, has the same advantages that you have. So take advantage of it. Make something of it. So you combine that, a little bit of emotional intelligence, some empathy, some technology. Very some hard humor. to standardize, all though. All this and, stuff. You can't standardize. And and so I, listen, I feel bad for all the educators and the people that have to have <laughs> the, the standards, because I can pontificate all day. But how do you measure it? That, I just don't, I don't know. I just know when I see a kid come across, or come into my office for a job after, after college, I'm not focusing on their degree. I don't care what their major was. I'm looking for character. I'm looking for grit. I'm not looking for somebody who was handed everything in life. I want somebody that wants it more than I do, and that I, as a business owner, I feel good about investing into them. I want a nice vessel that we can develop. When you come into, I don't care if you went to Yale, Harvard, when you come into my office as a, as a fresh grad, you don't know anything. And I'm going to make sure you understand that. When you come into my office <laughs> at 21, with your Yale, whatever, you say, Mr. Wadi, I want to help you with strategy, you don't know anything. Strategy shouldn't even come out of your mouth for the next decade, maybe. <laughs> so, it's just a thought. We have, we have somebody in, in the audience from, uh, from both the education and, and the trades. Um, Paul Onder, are you still with us? I know you had a question you wanted to ask. So, uh, yeah, I do come from the... Uh... Here, let me... This is also being recorded. That's so, that's that's okay. so uh, good evening, and thank you for the panel, and you, John. Um, yeah, I come from the business of plumbing and heating. I'm a graduate from Passaic County Tech in 1980. I received my master plumber's license at the age of 22. And now I'm a uh, teacher of plumbing and pipe fitting for Essex County Tech. And the one thing I teach my kids is accountability. Because when you're in a business, you are accountable. So my question is, how do I make my time and the student's time more valuable by supporting it with a great curriculum, but what else can we do? And I'm looking at the unions and their apprenticeship programs, and I said, well, I don't have any student that pretty much is 18 and past because I'm in high school. So what can I do to get these kids ready if they wanted to go into an apprenticeship? And I say, why don't we come up with soft skills, time management, and pre-apprenticeship? We have to go with pre-apprenticeship because that's the only thing that's gonna keep them accountable for their time in my classroom, shop time, I could video portfolio all of their skills, they need to uh, perform in front of a camera. And all of these things, they could see themselves on how professional or lack of professional, professionalism that they bring to the table. So um, 
what else can we do? And that's pretty much what I bring. Linda, I know you spoke, when you and I spoke about this, you talked about apprenticeships and building that into, you want to expound on that? Sure. So uh, apprenticeship is a very um, <coughs> hot topic in New Jersey right now, and Governor Murphy created the Apprenticeship Network. Um, there is a, an individual uh, in the Apprenticeship Network who is specifically um, partnering with the Department of Education, and we have a liaison who oversees all structured learning experiences with pre-apprenticeship falling under that umbrella. I'm going to just shout out Judy Savage up there, who um, is the president of the county council or the Council of County Vocationals, um, for their success in helping lead um, the recent articulation uh, with the Port Authority, with five county um, vocational programs in aligning pre-apprenticeship um, opportunities for students. Monmouth County recently launched a pre-apprenticeship in the agricultural area. So we are very interested in this conversation, and I had the opportunity um, to meet Paul before we got down here, and we gave him a card, and we will absolutely follow up because this is how these things happen, right? These, these things are a, a large movement with a lot of interested parties, but what I found in my time in vocational education is, first and foremost, it's about relationship. It is about the relationship between a teacher and the student. When you ask, Paul, what else can we um, add to the student's education? Relationship. We need to show students that we care about them, that we're interested in where they go. And when that relationship forms, they will then have the faith and trust to listen to you. Um, otherwise, you're just somebody else pontificating at them. And then it's relationships between the school and industry partners. It's critical that there be a, a person at the school who is able to um, solve industry's problems, listen to industry. That's why every county vocational school district and every program um, in the state that's funded by Perkins Dollars has an advisory board. That advisory board meets um, at least semi-annually and is is critical to advising on curriculum partnerships and industry-based opportunities. Karen, you were agreeing from your perspective, both your perspectives, also Labor Commissioner. Yeah, yeah I think uh, apprenticeships are really, really important. So I'm, I'm glad we had the question from Paul, and, and this is a, a really important topic. I had the privilege of spending a week in Germany in October with the 12 other Americans learning about the dual apprenticeship model. And there's a lot that we can learn about how other countries attack this. Now, we're not obviously ever going to be Germany and have that kind of an education system. But this idea of blending classroom experience with work experience is really important. And so I think the work that the administration is doing around apprenticeships, we're partnering with the Labor Department and we're building uh, apprenticeship programs in community colleges, in manufacturing, and in government and public service so that state workers will have an apprenticeship program to prepare them as well. And so that's a, that's a really big commitment on our part. I, I would encourage that we think broadly about what we mean by apprenticeship because we really need to blend work-based learning and classroom experience. And that may not always be a registered apprenticeship meeting the standards of the U.S. Department of Labor. But we, we need to move towards more experience, more work experience for students at community college, at high school. Um, and I think the studies and the data and the anecdotes show that students at work 
make better career decisions, better academic decisions, and they're better prepared for their next career opportunity. Yeah, and Linda, I, I gave you a little homework. I don't know if you had done it about option two. Um, New Jersey has, as many as, as you know, uh, opportunity to to work, I guess, just spring semester in a, in a job, option two. And I, my question to you is, how what percentage of kids do it? How'd you do on that assignment? I totally dropped the ball on you, John. <laughs> a few other things got in my no, way. No, I I'm imagine. Sorry. I imagine. But, but option two is in the regulations, and it requires that students have the opportunity to meet high school level standards through um, experiences other than seat time, right? So we award credits now. Five credits is 120 seat hours. And the, these regulations require that districts provide pathways to students, um, both to optimize their interests and to avoid repetitive learning experiences, to demonstrate their mastery through assessment, um, but, but through knowledge garnered from experiences other than seat time. So I will um, endeavor to get my homework assignment. I That's see people okay. diligently okay. writing it down for me. If you so take your time, like Mike <laughs> said, we'll be back. Excellent. So you can follow this up. Um, Michael Klein, are you? Uh, there you are. Yeah, you had a. There you are. You had a. You had a question that gets at something I wanted to uh, touch on. Thanks so much. Thanks for the panel. Oh. Um, I gotta do this. Uh, introduce yourself, Mike. Mike. I can't. No one. No, I know. I know. I know. I'm coming. Uh, hi, I'm um, Michael Klein. Um, I'm affiliated with the faculty now at Rutgers, but for uh, many years had run the New Jersey Association of State Colleges and Universities. So, hi, Dr. Henderson. Um, my question follows up perfectly. This, the, the issue of apprenticeships in high schools leads to the idea of stackable credentials for higher ed. And I'm really interested in how higher ed partners with industry to, and, and are really interested in how you work with the faculty, to develop a curriculum that is considered um, career ready or some sort of a credential that is stackable, but short of a degree program, something that's more nimble and flexible. Uh, but how do you develop those programs and find the industry partners in the first place? So that's an excellent question. And like the K-12 system, we are within the rigors of the Carnegie classification system that has our credits based on, again, seat time. A lot of colleges and universities have looked at other ways to do that. And so what you might find is for someone who's pursuing uh, a degree in business, let's just, just call it uh, finance. But they're particularly interested in financial technology. So we might offer, first of all, a certificate in that, or we might offer then a minor in it. Or um, as we did it in JC, uh, NJCU, we went to Fidelity and they said, well, we like your MBA program, but we really need for you to change your curriculum a little bit, which we did. So just tweaked a little bit of it. So our MBA program for certain pieces of it uh, is exactly what they need. And it's because, uh, as you said, information is changing so quickly that it's gonna be critically important for us to build things that are very stackable. So many institutions today will do either non-credit, that then turns into credit, um, that then turns into things that you can stack beco to become degrees. Um, I think this is gonna, people are gonna find that they are continually gonna have to be re-educated because things change. I think the technology industry particularly, uh, what's relevant today is going to be passe and you're gonna have to learn something new. So having that, uh, you know, a lot of schools are already doing this. I, I know even in, in my own sector, uh, I look at their nursing program, <clears throat> the changes that you have to do there. Um, 
and as well as with the education program. So, is this a model at all for K twelve in high schools as well? I mean, is it not so much stackable, but you know, but obviously setting kids up to 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 move into something like that. Absolutely. So, some of our um, career and technical education programs are already aligned with um, credentials. Uh, we saw a model coming out of Patterson and William Patterson College uh, around phlebotomy, right? So there was a health sciences curriculum, a phlebotomy credential earned before students left high school, an alignment with William Patterson University, and then an opportunity to earn and learn because you're leaving with a credential that moves you right into um, a, a, an earning wage and then um, the opportunity to continue to move on um, when you're ready with college credits. His, um, I don't know, I uh, didn't see if she made it, Leslie Rubenstein. Um, she's with the um, Learning Disabilities Association of New Jersey. And, and she and others asked the question, how does this relate uh, to students with disabilities? And, and how, how are we addressing, and, and, and folks also raised this point with, with those of a second language as well. But how do we address, um, you know, setting standards per se, and certainly the assessment question um, for you know for st students with special needs, and 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 make that meaningful as well, because often they get left out of this conversation. So I thought you were going someplace different, so you turned it back to ask me about standards and assessment and ELL students and um, special needs students. So our New Jersey students st learning standards apply to all students in New Jersey, right? We, we hold the same high expectations for all students. Students need to take different pathways to scaffold up to demonstrating mastery. Students need different amounts of time, and I think that the fact that we now measure graduation rate at the five-year rate and are talking about looking at a six-year rate um, is reflective of the fact that students don't have the same starting place so while we hold the same expectations for them, it's, it's a different path and a different set of timing for different groups of students or different individual students. That being said, I think the question about college and career readiness programming for our L students and our special needs students is something that um, we continue to work to do a better job at. I think we do a pretty good job. And can we do a better job? Absolutely. We know that we have subgroups that access career and technical education at lower rates. And, and those are two of the groups that, that access it at lower rates. I think there are ways that technology is making it easier um, through adaptive learning. Um, the opportunity to use simulators and so forth um, allows students with um, handicaps to access um, skills acquisition in different ways and translating um, translation software, et cetera, um, I think helps to, to scaffold for our English language learners. Others uh, want to speak speak to that in, in your own um, you know, community colleges, obviously dealing a lot with uh, you know a big immigrant population uh, within your schools. I'm sure that it is, is yours as well. No, that's that's very true, and and I think our colleges have been doing a very good job of of blending and and building those supports for students. I think that. Uh, we've done a very good job of making sure that we're meeting students where they are, no, no matter what, where they come to it. I mean, we're open door institutions, right? So people come to community college and you've got a high school diploma, we're going to serve you and we're going to find the right way to serve you with ESL supports and other 
supports that you might need. And so um, we need to continue to do that. Do you think there's a strong, a strong enough alignment between K-12 and, and community colleges in terms of expectations? And I'll ask that for you as well. I mean, and, and I'll ask for, you know, the uh, career piece of this as well. Is there a, you know, is there a coherence in terms of how our high schools are, are teaching students to what they'll really need in your, your schools? I think there's a lot more coherence and we probably give it credit for. I think we tend to be negative in New Jersey. Maybe it's something in, our, in the it's water here. Thing. It's a Jersey thing. <laughs> um, but Linda's right. We have um, tremendously strong K through 12 system in New Jersey, not that we can't do better. Um, and I think we're beginning to see those kinds of partnerships between community colleges and high schools and community colleges and four-year schools so that we're building those pathways that Mike talked about. That is really, really important. So we have a strong foundation to build on. There are some difficult questions ahead, as we, as we know, and I think we need to take our time talking about how we, we do that. But there's a lot to really to build on. Uh, there's more good than there is, there is bad. Um, and I think we need to be uh, aware of that and continue to move forward. Um, none of our own institutions are going to do this alone, and so we need to find ways to work together. And Gene, from the, yeah. So I, um, I'm very passionate about the community colleges because we have great success recruiting from community colleges. So I've worked with Bloomfield and a few others where they can be more nimble in turning curriculums toward business. Mm -hmm. And we've had meetings, we talked about entry level jobs, which I cannot find talent mm -hmm. for. And what we find is when we go to the two-year schools, there's a reservoir of talent there that may not go to the four-year. They don't necessarily have to. There are certain uh, paths, whether it's in technology, whether it's coding or medical technologies and things like that, you just need a, a year or two years of focus to get the certificate. And then we will take you and put you in an environment where you can be trained up but to what, uh, Paul, Paul was it? Do you need Paul, yeah, right? Paul. You said something very important, soft skills. Soft skills can really be a great equalizer. It makes up for a lot of other things that you may be lacking or you may need more time, need more runway to get to where you need to be. There are so many folks out here who actually could work for me or one of my peers, but they lack the soft skills. Those, those things have to be taught. They used to be taken for, back in the day, everybody was taught to have manners and to approach, a, you know, you don't butt in on a conversation. You say thank you, you say please. You don't remove things from people's desks without asking. <laughs> things like the basic things that among a certain age group is, is second nature. But to the younger people coming up, not necessarily. And so when you have someone like what Paul was talking about, it's, it's one thing to be able to fix the plumbing, but if you're having, you, you can't have a congruent conversation with the client or the customer about what the problem is, or your phone skills are horrible, or you're rude, or you're not even dressed properly for business. These are the basic things that I don't care what your grades are. If you come to do an interview with me and those things are not in evidence, you're not gonna get an opportunity. And those are things that we can teach regardless of where the, the, the student is. They should have the benefit of that basic instruction because it opens doors. I have taken uh, 
uh, high school kids under my wing because I liked something about their character. I liked the fact that they looked at me in the eye. Whatever happened to that? When you give me a handshake, give me a handshake. Let me know you're here. And then I'll look at you and I'll say, you know what? What else is there about this kid? There's something about this kid. There's something about this young but lady. Is this a product of schools or? It can come from many different ways. Yeah, exactly. It can come from school. It can come from, from church. It can come from home. But I know it when I see it. And again, I can't always standardize it. But I will just say that successful people, the go-getters, the people with grit, they always have that baseline of, 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 of uh, awareness and, and, and enthusiasm. And, and they're, they're there, they're, they want to be, they're, they're present in the moment, right? So when we're talking, when I go to, I mentor several high school kids, college kids, it's, I just, I love doing it. And I do a lot of public speaking at these colleges. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking in the room like this, I'm looking for who's sleeping, who's not paying attention, who's on the phone, and I'm watching them, but I'm also looking for the ones that are looking at me, and they're focused. And I'm thinking to myself, you see, this kid here has a greater chance of making it than you who thinks I don't see you, right? And that's just, it's not, it's not a panacea, but it's just something that, as an employer, I'm speaking that you care about. I'm yeah. looking for that stuff because I know if I can, if the vessel is good, I can fill it. I don't have a problem with it. It's like what Paul was saying. If you're going to teach somebody something and it's like, okay, I fixed it, you know, I fixed the plumbing, but I can't have conversation. We can't, I don't have the basic math skills to say, well, the job costs X. <laughs> and if the, those are, that's the stuff that people need to know. Right. Right. A lot of ways we're overcomplicating it. And I remember the, my mom, God bless, is 89 years old. And she went to school at Neptune, but she went to Ocean Grove High School. That's how old she is. I shouldn't say old mom, sorry. <laughs> but she would tell me stories of what high school was like for her. They taught them everything. How to dress, how to talk, how to have a conversation, how to balance a checkbook. Those are the kinds of things that carried that generation all the way through. Well, now financial literacy is coming back as a... Mm -hmm. As a requirement in Oh, it should. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It should be. God knows if I had had it when I was in college, I would have had a much better credit score before I hit 40. <laughs> but, 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 we, but we laugh. But those are the kinds of things that if you don't teach a kid can get them in trouble early on. And they're behind the, the eight ball the rest of their careers. Are there? Yep. Wait. Let me come to you. Hi, um, I'm Renee Kubiatis, the director of the Anti-Poverty Network of New Jersey. Um, and the Alice report, if those of you who are familiar with the Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed report says that 40% of New Jerseyans are struggling to get by um, and not able to meet basic needs, right? Um, and having grown up on welfare myself here in New Jersey, um, what I've come to see is that um, people not only are struggling and in crisis and under a lot of stress constantly, and that prevents them from getting a good education uh, up into high school and then beyond as well, um, but there's also this um, kind of survival mode that you go into, right? I'm only thinking about day to day. And that prevents us from gaining those soft skills. Right? And thinking beyond what are my actions today and how is that going to impact my future? Right? Um, so what, what do you all have to say about that and things that you might be working on? 
So one of the things that uh, we're working on in my own institution, because probably 70% of my students come from family income, or the average family income of the students at NJCU is about uh, $40,000. So they do not have a lot of means. So what we realized was their biggest obstacle to finishing their degree was actually money. So what we began, but fortunately, in the state of New Jersey, they are going to be eligible for full TAG and full Pell, but there's still a little bit they have to pay. So we started the debt-free program a few years ago, which says, okay, we'll get full Pell, which is the federal aid, we'll get full TAG, which is the state aid, you need to pay some, and then we'll cover the rest. The part that you were going to take the loan out for, we're going to cover, and we do that. Uh, the piece we're finding about this, it's working, except they still have to get there. They still have to figure out books. So the business school said, you know what? Rather than making you buy a book that you're not going to buy because then it'll be eight weeks into the semester and you still don't have the book, I'm going to have you pay a fee because I've put the fee on your tuition. You can get the financial aid for it. And we'll use electronic books. So when you show up the very first day of class, everybody has a book. And there, everybody has this, you know, the same book. So everybody has the same playing field. It makes it a lot easier for them to then focus, as you said, on what's tomorrow going to look like? How am I going to work on those soft skills? The other thing we've begun to do is have students uh, work on campus because that gives them much more engagement in the campus um, and they're here. So a lot of things that you're doing just to make sure that you're giving them the opportunity to learn. Another question. I want to point out that one of my colleagues, uh, there was a press release from Murphy administration that they're going to do uh, more, uh, I guess it's a talent network that will align education with employer needs. So I just want to point out the impact of just this event has already led him to an initiative. So talk about action. Good job, John. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Julie Borst. I'm the executive director of Save Our Schools New Jersey Community Organizing. I am also the parent of a student with a disability. Um, she is 20 years old. Um, I am all for the six-year grad rate. I think that's a good thing, <laughs> especially for those of you in the room who don't know. Special ed students do have an opportunity to extend their high school experience through age 21, which means three years after high school. So this is... Um, so I think that six year is actually very valuable to the rest of us. Um, and I wanna go circle back to, um, to students with disabilities and what the standards have meant and what high stakes testing has meant in the environment in which my daughter grew up in. So I will say she has been in New Jersey since kindergarten um, and our best, our very best um, educational experience for her was actually in Asheville, North Carolina City Public Schools preschool for three-year-olds and four-year-olds. So my shout out to North Carolina and to Asheville in particular. But the thing that was so great about their preschool program was the director. And she was a really good grant writer and she got everything that she needed for those students in that building. So what that meant for her, because Asheville is a city it has all of the city problems, but small, because it's a small place. Um, and she was essentially creating a community school environment. So I am also now the president of the board of the New Jersey Community Schools Coalition. Um, we are waiting on legislation. Um, and one of the things that we 
advocate for in a community school environment are small class sizes. We like the um, performance-based assessments because you are able to do, as you were just saying, Mr. Wadi, um, it does involve those soft skills. It does involve lots and lots and lots of writing and revising and understanding what you're writing about and what you're presenting and presenting it to maybe a panel that looks like you all, right? And being able to defend those things. That can be standardized to a degree, I think, personally, enough so that that becomes a better model than just a standardized test. We're losing too much. Too many people get pushed by the wayside in a standardized test. And so while it's been pointed out here tonight that you know, New Jersey's scores have grown on the park tests over the last several years, well, that's great, but 50% of them are still failing, failing it, quote unquote, because of where our cut scores are. Does that say that the state of New Jersey, our teachers are terrible, our, our students aren't learning? No, of course that doesn't mean that at all. So I think there's a much broader conversation that groups like mine have been trying to have for years. Exactly those questions that you were talking about, Linda, also, which are, what is the purpose of a test? What are we using that test for? What are the consequences for the students and anybody else who happens to have anything attached to that test? Those are the conversations that I would rather be having now, especially as New Jersey is, is considering, we're, we're considering what those next assessments are going to be looking like. Those, those questions have value in and of themselves, and I'm not sure that we have tapped into all the people who need to be sitting at that table. And I will certainly, as I have in the past, help you do that. Um, but I think there's, there's, much broader, um, there's much broader implications to what does college and career ready mean today. I think, I think it's much broader. The conversation has been too, too narrowed. You know, there are definitely, um, there's definitely questions about what the standards are and how we go forward. So my question to you all is, as you're thinking about all of those things, how are we including those students who are not in that top performing bunch? How do we bring them in there, but especially those students with disabilities? Right. This, this narrowing of everything has not been good for them. So how do we open this up more quickly how do we have access for those students in a way that they haven't had before? That's a great one. So I, I um, personally have a similar situation. So my daughter uh, has Asperger's syndrome. So she actually benefited from some of the soft skills training that I was talking about earlier. That's why I brought it up. So now at 16, she can present anything to a room of people, but she had to be taught how to do it. And with that brought more confidence, and with more confidence brought more risk taking, and before you know it, there was this, you know, it, it's a steamrolling effect. And what I also realized about children who are part of a learning differences program and, and what have you, as I've gotten older, I realized that we all have <laughs> some sort of learning difference. No two people learn the same. It's just, we just don't, we're all individuals. So as I've gotten older and I've seen experience, some of the most gifted people I work with in the technology field are people who are on the learning disability spectrum. Some of them are just off the charts smart. So you have to, to work from a poor person like myself as an employer is to say, okay, this person doesn't necessarily have to be the VP of sales and out front of the whole world, but this person is so detail oriented 
and so driven and works tirelessly at, an, at, at a task, there are ways you can leverage that. Mm -hmm. That's what my daughter does. She's, she's not a show pony, she's a workhorse. So she's the one that will literally work until everybody else gives up and then she succeeds. So I know exactly what, you, what, what you're getting at. Um, I worked with uh, Fairleigh Dickinson. They have an LD program. It's cutting edge because now that we're getting more awareness and we're pulling them back the veil of shame, and I will say shame, uh, even especially in the minority community. Yes. It, it, it is, it is, we, you know, it, you just, <laughs> it's even magnified because no one wants to talk about anything, uh, uh, you know, outside of the norm, quote unquote. Um, so I feel good things are coming. They're coming slowly, but they are coming. You know, um, there, there, there's awareness, and with more awareness comes solution. You know, but I'm not a, I'm not an administrative person. I'm, I don't work for the state. I'm a business guy. <laughs> right, a little disclaimer. But from a personal perspective, I have seen what can happen. Uh, one of the blessings I think in my life is it. Being an entrepreneur and being successful allowed me and my wife to make decisions about her education path that I'm afraid to say would not have come out the way that they did if I didn't have the means at a certain time. And that's just a fact. That's just a fact. And, and I, I thank God every day for that. But it's a reality. How we fix that, that's above my pay grade. But I do know that there is, there's, a, there's some solutions out there. It's turning, it's just turning slowly. We have, we have time for, I think, one more question. Uh, yourself keep it brief. Oh, sure. Sure. My name is um, Ellen Posey. I'm from William Patterson University. And um, in all the discussion today, one of the things, in, in all discussion of college and career ready, I often find that one of the most essential pieces of preparing our students to take these on and off ramps. To write, 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 you have to read, read, read. So one of the things that's missing is the library and the importance of the library. And it really is um, frustrating to, to me that there's high schools with no librarians and no libraries. How do they become college and career ready if they don't know how to use a library, if they don't know how to go past Google for an answer. <laughs> Everything's not on Google. <laughs> so, you know, what do you see as how we can, um, you know, address that issue and make the importance of libraries known across the state and encourage them as part of the standards? They need to be part of the standard discussion. Sure. Um, so we'll share the mic on this one. Okay. I'll be quick. Uh, thank you so much for the question. Very thoughtful question. I was the principal of a high school with no real library. We partnered with the county library. They came in. Um, all of our students got library cards. Uh, we used online resources that were connected to the county library. Um, we are, as a State Department of Education, partnering with the library to help fund middle school databases because it's part of equity of access and, and resources. Um, we also, Lori Howard sitting here in the front row, and she's helping us um, do a library card campaign with middle school students. Um, we, we see that this is critically important, and we also know that schools are making tough choices with limited resources. So we need to leverage the technologies and the community resources that are available. Thank you for that question. Dr. Anderson? 
So I'll share a quote with you that uh, our colleague said, you know, the library is the heart of the university. It absolutely is. But the piece that as more and more information has gotten to be far more digital, the most important part to me are the librarians because they are the ones who can help you find the roadmap to help you make sense out of information. So I think librarians and libraries have gotten to be more important over time. It really becomes the center, center of the campus uh, because it helps you figure out how to find information and what to do with it. We've run out of time, but I want to give the panelists each an opportunity um, with Linda Eno sitting among them um, to suggest one thing that you think all high school students should know or be able to do. Um, and, and don't repeat each other. So depending on which one you, who goes first. Uh, but here's your opportunity. And I'm sure Governor Murphy's listening and there'll be a press release on this uh, subsequently as well. Uh, so I'm going to get to one that is actually something that is the heart of uh, how I teach mathematics. And it's, it gets to what you talked about with students being able to work together. Uh, I would hope that high school students leave having done a significant project as a group significant project as a group before they leave high school. Gene? So mine is uh, pretty simple. I'm, a, I'm again, I go back to the soft skills. Um, the ability to present ideas, right, and be able to tie those ideas around a common theme, that, that will take them very far in life. Aaron, we'll come back to you, Linda. You'll get the, <laughs> you'll get the last word. That's, well, I think the list is long, but I'll throw in the real importance of work experience and integrating application of what is learned in the classroom in a work experience. I think that is really important to getting our students on a pathway to something beyond high school and some post-secondary credential. And Linda, you can now disclose everything that's going to be um, going I forward. I feel like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I will go with students need to believe in themselves. Students need to see themselves as capable of academic work beyond um, high school. They need to see themselves in the job market that is out there. They need to believe in their own abilities and their own unique style as a pathway to getting there. Great. Well, I want to thank the panel. Um, thank you very much. I also uh, want to provide an opportunity um, to Joseph Claffey, Vice President here at the school, who wanted to say a few words. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. This is a wonderful opportunity for everyone. Thank you all for being here as well. If you know our president, Dr. Wong, she's always intrepid and very busy, so she apologizes for not being here. But on her behalf, I thank you all for being here. Um, this is an incredibly important topic for us here at the college. Of course, our number one priority is affordable tuition. We're a big supporter of the Governor's CCOG program, of course. And then this college and career ready is very important to us, especially with the campus in Trenton. We have terrific programs, our culinary program, we have an automotive technician program, we have uh, radiography programs, nursing program, the police academy, the fire academy here. Our goal is to get our students both college and career ready. We have matriculation uh, agreements with over 80 colleges. We have five universities on campus here. So we do everything we can um, to meet the needs of the students, including athletics as well. Um, we have, uh, she would be uh, upset with me if I didn't boast, we have one of the most successful, we have the most successful pilot 
training program in the country. Uh, we have a tri-venture um, where we provide a associate's degree. We have a flight academy, uh, Infinity Flight School, who trains those pilots. And then we have a partnership with American Airlines, who then hires those. What's really most important to us is that the group that it really serves the most is the military. Um, these folks come out of the military. They can transfer from being a helicopter pilot and, um, and any number of areas. And they're able to come into that program, and we're able to get them employed. And that really means a lot to us. So again, thank you all very much. Uh, I'm glad we could be your host. And thank you all for being here. And I want, uh, again, thank you, our panel, very much. I think it was great. Uh, I, I hope we advanced uh, at least the discussion a bit. I, um, there's no easy answers on this, and, and certainly when it comes to assessment, which will be our next session, uh, how do we measure these things, whether it's through performance or, or other means, um, will be, you know, I look forward to seeing many of you there, and we'll, we'll let you know the details. But thank you very much for joining us. A reminder to folks, um, please fill out the surveys. They're really helpful for us to, to learn from. And thank you very much. Stay dry, uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you at the next one. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable program. If you have comments or suggestions, please email info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services provided by StateBroadcastNews.com, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insights for New Jersey. <laughs>